Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis, starting at chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he, sorry, because he was the son of his old age. And, when, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And next we're turning to Genesis 44, verse 33. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the word of the Lord. We mentioned that fighting can seem to be everywhere, like it's automatic. Keith and James and myself, I'm not going to describe an argument between, between Keith and James Cop and myself, but the three of us went to Waterloo, Ontario this week. By choice. We were going to a Vision Ministries conference. This is still not, there we go. Uh, so let me show you, the photo I'm about to show you is from this week. Keith and I shared a room, and we were really blessed, we counted it as God's providence, that we got a room in a really old holiday, and it wasn't that nice actually, but anyway, we got a room with a deck overlooking the pool, and this photo, just on Tuesday, was taken from that deck. You might have to click it. I don't know why this is, we're having trouble with this today. Keep a couple more. <laughs> looks of horror on your faces. Um, yeah, that's on Tuesday morning before we went to the conference. It's lovely there. James is still there. He decided to stay. Um, but on the way there, Keith and I took the SkyTrain to the airport early on Monday morning. And on the SkyTrain, there was an incident. You're going to have to keep, I'll just have to keep looking back at you. There was an incident. Uh, here's what happened. We're sitting down, it's a few stops in from Waterfront, and we're going all the way to the airport, and uh, a, a number of people come on. It's not that crowded, but a, a group of people enter the doors as they open at one of the stations. And obviously what happened, I can see now what happened, that a, a man walked in carrying a coffee that he must have just purchased at Starbucks, because it was one of those like Giganto or whatever sizes they have. Like it used to be the big, so venti, I suppose. It was really big and really full. And something, it must have been a specialty drink because we could smell it once it found its eventual home. And something happened where another man must have brushed the hand of the guy holding the coffee, and the coffee just went flying. We could see it like it was in slow motion, and it just, and you could feel the weight of it, like hear the weight of it just bang on the floor of the sky train. 
and just was everywhere, just pouring out of the cup. And by the time you could pick it up, there was probably just a little bit left. But this picture doesn't do it justice. There was a big, big puddle in the middle, right when you walk on where these doors are on this, uh, on this one SkyTrain car. Here's what happens. There's this pause. And the guy whose coffee it was, it took Keith and I a moment to figure out who was who, but the guy whose coffee it was kind of stands. The other guy sits down right beside Keith. So, and the guy whose coffee it was comes over and just stands there like this. And, and the first guy, the guy who was sitting down, says, sorry, buddy, and he didn't get it out. And the other guy who's lost his $27 coffee says, maybe next time, just don't be in such a rush. And that was it. It was to me as if the guy... Now, first of all, now I'm going to divide you into two groups based on what you think of the incident. Who do you think is at fault? To me, if you're carrying a super big coffee walking onto a SkyTrain, it's up to you to make sure that doesn't get spilled. Right? And, you're, and there's crowded people around. So I think the guy who got angry is mostly at fault. So he is scowling the whole time, and now this is more my character. You can see what happened next. The SkyTrain departed. Boom, boom, boom. Corinne knows the sounds. And off it goes, and then the puddle starts to do an art project all over the... And I'm trying so hard not to laugh, and the guy whose coffee has been spilled puts it, thank you, under his feet where he sits down. That's that guy, his feet, his... And Everything in me, now this is like a confession, wanted to go over, walk by, and just mistakenly kick over his coffee. <laughs> just so he could tell people I had the worst morning. It can seem like fighting is everywhere. Always ready to argue. And what we want to talk about today is arguing within your family. I wouldn't have to go far even within this congregation to say, can it seem sometimes to you as if your family is always arguing? Or two individuals within your family? Like they're always ready to just go off. If we're going to talk about how to argue Christianly, and remember the reason we're doing this is we're saying this is part of our Christian witness. That in our faith, because of what we believe, we ought to think differently about argument and disagreement. So, unfortunately, and I say this as part of a family myself, I think unfortunately, it's not all unfortunate, but unfortunately, one of the areas where this is going to be the biggest test is in your family. Your family and your extended family. It can seem so very difficult. Some of you can seem to get along with everybody else in the world just fine, but not your family. Of course, there's old tropes, old images like this. The family heading to church, screaming and hollering at one another, getting into the car and on the way to church, and then they walk in, and they walk into the foyer, good morning, Mark, how are you today? And everything's fine. I hope today to share a few things that are helpful and hopeful, and we want to look again at one story within Scripture. You know the story. It's the story of Joseph and his brothers. He had 11 brothers, 10 older brothers. There's going to be some family conflict. You should add a note, and Aaron read it for us, that Joseph's dad loved Joseph more than the others. So you have all of these brothers and one, he wasn't actually the only one, but one in particular who was favored. You know things are going to get rough. 
Aaron reads to us that one day Joseph, quote, here's the English Standard Version, brought a bad report to his father about the brothers. What's the other word for that? He tattletailed. He went, Dad, you know what they're doing? So they're getting more and more upset at him. Then, after this, his dad makes him a really colorful robe. Multicolored, coat of many colors. He makes just Joseph, not the other brothers, just Joseph, a robe. Now, we have all the prescription for wonderful family harmony. How do mostly older brothers act when a younger brother is walking around with something special from dad that nobody else got, particularly if that special thing is a really colorful coat or robe? It gets worse, much worse. They're out in the fields one day, clearing. Well, and Joseph is reminded of a dream that he had. This reminds me of a dream. Let me tell you my dream, oh brothers of mine. Sometimes, like, sometimes you have a vision or a dream and you feel it's from the Holy Spirit and it's something encouraging and you want to share it with other people and that's great. Other times, I would advise you to not tell your dreams to other people. This might have been one of those circumstances. But anyway, Joseph says, I had a fantastic dream. Let me tell you about my dream. We, all of us brothers, were working out in the fields, cutting down, what do they call it, bringing in the sheaves, right? Your old songs. We were cutting down and my sheave stood up. Isn't that, that's interesting. And all of yours bowed down and worshipped mine. That's a great dream. And how would you react if you were one of the brothers? They said, isn't he wonderful? In fact, watching him sauntering proudly in his colorful coat, they said probably something that we can't say here. Sometime later, he has another dream. It's a very similar dream, but this time instead of sheaves and agriculture, it's, it's uh, planets, stars, sun, moon. And he says that all of the others bowed down and worshipped him, but this time he includes not only 11 stars, but a sun and a moon. In other words, his parents are now bowing down and worshipping him as well. So, actually, this is one account where Jacob also called Israel, Joseph's dad doesn't respond very well. He doesn't like being told by his son, even one of his favorite sons, that one day you'll bow down and worship me. Sometime later, there's an incident. The brothers are out in the fields, or they're away from home, all except Joseph, or most except Joseph. And his dad does that thing that a number of you have done as parents, or you experienced this as a child on the other side, where if you have a number of siblings, the parent says, why don't you go and play with your brothers? And of course, how do you feel as a child? No. Either the kids that, right, often, if everybody's getting along, it's fine, but why don't you go and play with so-and-so? No, I don't want to. I don't want to deal with that grief. And he says, Joseph, go be with your brothers. His brothers, who are away from home, Joseph does go to be with them. They see him coming from quite far away, and they say to each other, and this is where you're like, okay, my family is not this bad, hopefully. They say to each other, you know what we should do? We should kill him. Their plan is that they'll kill him, and then they'll throw him into a pit, and then they'll go back home to dad, and they'll say, this terrible thing has happened, Our brother Joseph, your son, was devoured by animals. One of the brothers speaks up, Reuben, and says, you know, why don't we just throw him into the pit and not kill him? 
And I don't know how they reach that compromise, but that eventually becomes the plan. When he's in the pit, the brothers see some traitors heading towards. And Judah, one of the brothers, gets an idea. He says, let's just sell him to the traitors. Right? And that way, he won't be dead, but he won't bug us anymore. He'll wind up somewhere else. And that's what happens. Of course, won't go into all the details of the story, but he winds up sold in Egypt and becomes the servant of a wealthy man. That man's wife takes a liking to Joseph. He refuses her advances, and then she claims that he assaulted her and he's thrown in jail. And through the story, you get more and more dreams. There's dreams of cupbearers and chief bakers. You remember those dreams? The cupbearer had a dream. Basically, in the dream, well, he tells Joseph the dream, and Joseph interprets the dream for him. He says, here's what it means. Your head is down low like this, but your head will be lifted up again in the presence of the king or the presence of those in charge. And so the chief baker, who had a similar dream, says, can you interpret my dream for me? Because my head was hanging low as well. And he says, yes, that's true, and your head will be lifted also, but it's slightly different because when it's lifted up, it won't be attached to your body anymore. And so, which interpretation do you like? But in jail, Pharaoh, well, while Joseph's in jail, Pharaoh hears about his reputation from one who survived this. And he, he has dreams himself that are very troubling, Pharaoh does. And so it's told, well, there's someone who can interpret your dreams. And Joseph comes and interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Basically this, he says that there will be a famine in the land. But if you get ready and store food in advance, then you'll weather this famine that will be in the whole region. And that is what happens, as you know. Meanwhile, so that's in Egypt. Meanwhile, where Jacob and the rest of the sons are, they get hit by the famine. And so what do they do? You know, right? Jacob says to his sons, go to Egypt because they've got food there and get some grain. They're to leave Benjamin, the youngest behind, now the favorite of Jacob, who thinks that Joseph is dead. Of course, when they go off to Egypt, it's Joseph who they have an audience with as he has risen to power. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. He says to them, I'm really condensing the details. He says to them, go back and get your younger brother, and then I'll know that you're not spies. And when they return, Jacob is... um, He just doesn't want Benjamin to go. At this, they go back to Joseph and they see this audience again. And Joseph is demanding that one stand imprisoned, held by him. And in chapter 44 and 45, do I have it there? Chapter 44 and 45 is what I want to get to. Judah stands in the place of his brother. There's a lengthy speech of Judah in chapter 44. And he says, don't take my brother to this person who he doesn't know as Joseph, but take me. And at this, Joseph cracks. So you have all of this stuff happening, all of this family trouble. Judah, after all of these years, this is probably 20 years yeah, it's, a, it's, it's about 20 years. Joseph is 39 years old when this happens. So just over 20 years. 
including time between the first and second visit. Judah says, don't take my brother, take me. And at that, Joseph reveals his identity to these brothers. One of the interesting things about what Judah does to note in your biblical imagination, when Judah says, take me instead of my brother, this is the first instance in our scripture of human substitution. And where do you think that points? We sang a song this morning. Was it the first one we sang? Lion of Judah? Who's Lion and the Lamb, but referred to Lion of Judah? Who's the Lion of Judah? Jesus Christ. Which is the Judah? This Judah. In other words, from this line will come the Savior of humanity. This speech on this day in front of Joseph is not only about that day, but it prefigures something else. And when Joseph sees this act by his brother, he can't take it anymore. Joseph, who had been a person of control, private emotion only, he asks the rest of the people other than his brothers to leave, and then he breaks down in front of his brothers. We're told that he wept like he hadn't before. And then he gives a speech in verse 45, in chapter 45. And that's where that famous passage is contained. That what you meant for my harm, God meant for my good. What's he referring to? The pit. All those years ago. Joseph, in doing this, identifies with the covenant family, with Jacob, with Israel, with God's special history with these people, instead of with the riches of Egypt. There is redemption here. There is forgiveness. There had been so much pain and estrangement earlier. Jacob had lived thinking that Joseph was dead. Maybe the brothers had as well. And here he, in a sense, comes back to life and there is reconciliation and redemption. Here's why I tell you this story as you think about your own family and arguing Christianly. I just want to tell you a few things to know in terms of family conflict. And by the way, not one of us here is an expert in how to argue in our families. If you think you are, come to the front and we'll just interview you and invite other members of your family along. It it is something that God has allowed or we face circumstances where we can even really grow in our faith, be serious about our faith, uh, be humble before God, and we can still struggle in family. There's some things to know, and even there are reflections of it in this story. Firstly, every family has conflict. Every one. There is no family without conflict and trouble. We could ask ourselves in our Christian faith what kind of disservice we have done to one another by presenting false ideals of family. Because people have judged themselves against that. People have looked across the way in church at another family or in the community and thought, why isn't my family like that? And it has caused tremendous pain. We've done a disservice to one another by holding up a false ideal. Even in our scriptures, there's no family without conflict and at times immense pain. The 
difficult note here would be in the last 30, 50 years, one of the things that's happened in the Christian church in the West is that for good reasons, talking about how important the family is in culture and whatever else, right? But for good reasons, with good motivation, we have done something that's not good. We have sometimes turned the family into an idol itself. It's not helpful. And simply, you know this simply by me saying, think of your family and let me tell you as a pastor right now, every family has difficulty, pain, and conflict. And the shortcomings that you feel your family has, you are not alone. It doesn't mean that you air all your dirty laundry all the time. It means simply that you know that. You don't have to pretend. You shouldn't have to pretend here. Secondly, often in a family it can seem like no matter what I do, there's trouble. I have here that we tend to ascribe fault. So in other words, in your mind, you ever have this happen? In your mind you think, well, I'm trying really hard. And there's still this difficulty or conflict or estrangement. So then what do you sometimes do? I'm trying really hard. So, by definition, it must be somebody else's fault. There's nothing more that I can do. Right? Uh, One of the helpful things in, in easing your mind and encouraging you towards hope and reconciliation is that the break there is not that something is difficult even if you're trying and it doesn't heal. The break is when you realize that even though you're trying, things don't seem to be getting better, is to not ascribe fault at that point whether it's true or not, is to simply say, I would prefer that it wasn't like this. Lord God, would you help show me how to act in this situation? It's the ascribing of fault that allows you to remain distant that gets into all kinds of difficulties. Not blame, but recognition. Recognition that sometimes, and I don't know what to make of this in Christian faith. We see this in the Old Testament, particularly in in, in the Old Testament, which is Christian and Jewish, in this story of Joseph, that sometimes it can take decades until a conflict is resolved. And what do you do with that? But I will say this. You need to look for those moments where reconciliation might be possible. Some of you have tried to force reconciliation, and that is... Then everybody doesn't, you know, they, they see you coming... And it might even be for good reasons. You can't force reconciliation, but you can be open. And when Joseph saw his brothers and Judah gave this speech, saying, take me instead of my brother, Joseph's heart cracked and he was open. And so were they. In this, I want to be careful with this, there is something to be said for discerning wisely whether you need to tell the other person how much they've hurt you. I've counseled a lot of people in church, in family situations, in church difficulties, whatever it might be, who are consistently saying to me, they need to know how much they've hurt me. Often, and I know that sometimes that might be true, but often it is not true. Joseph did not then take his brothers and say, you know what? (laughs) You wanted me dead. And then they could have said, well, you were a piece of work. 
We hated you, and with good reason. And they could have just gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And various schools of psychology and counseling and the rest will say that's necessary. Others will say it's not. Here in the economy of how God worked in this story, it wasn't necessary. Joseph simply said, what you meant for my bad, God used, God meant for my good. What happened there? The eyes were taken off of the conflict itself onto something and someone bigger. God is sovereign. Let me say this. God is sovereign even over your family. And even over the strife. And you'll know if there's a moment where you don't have to tell the other person how much they've hurt you, but where you simply open the door to that reconciliation. Thirdly, fairness does not always work. This is a little easier one. Can I tell you that each member of your family, particularly if there's multiple siblings, each member of your family is different and has different needs. Now, we're told in this story that Joseph was a favorite of his dad and favoritism is not good and leads to all kinds of difficulty. Favoritism is not good, but fairness is not realistic in terms of every single thing I do for this one, I'm going to do for this one. Every single dime I give to this one, I'm going to give to this one. We're going to count it all out. and everything. There's different needs, different people, different personalities. If you had a child who had a great physical disability, right, and you had to do all kinds of things to help that child, what would happen with another child that you have? They might not get that, get or need that same attention, but you would have to acknowledge that understanding for this child that one of the things that they're going to deal with is it's uneven. And as a parent, you would have to acknowledge that and say, I know this is something that might be difficult. But fairness, treating everybody exactly the same, doesn't necessarily work. In this story, Judah steps up past models of fairness and offers himself and becomes the model of Christian reconciliation. So I'm just saying that to you because in your own family, sometimes that can be the go-to. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. Aim for something better than fairness. Aim for demonstrating the love of God to all of those within your family. And aim to develop a context within that family where you realize we're all different. And fourthly, and I say this, this is what I really feel today, but I say this as if we all need to know this, but it hasn't reached its fruition. But I say this so strongly from my Christian faith, it is never, ever, ever too late. Some of you have told yourselves it's too late for reconciliation or whatever it might be because you've ascribed fault or some of you have blamed yourselves. If there was ever a story where there shouldn't have been reconciliation, it's this Joseph story. But it's when Joseph understands that something bigger is at play, God's sovereignty, that he is allowed to let go of control. Our hope in God tells us that it's never, ever too late. I do a lot of funerals and memorials, and I see the longing that people can have in their own family, something they bring to a funeral where... uh, Usually a a dad or mom has died and they feel like there's been something broken that hasn't been repaired. I'll say to you, of course, while everyone is still alive, you would like reconciliation and you should work for that. 
But when I say it's never too late, I mean even past the grave. That's our Christian hope. That even my memory of this loved one can be redeemed. That I can see them differently even after they're gone. And there's a longing in there, but it's still a reconciliation. So let me get there with you and put myself in this story as we seek the love of God in this. Don't know if this is true, but I suspect that it is. That in almost all of our families, there is always something unresolved. And we live in it. What I want to say to you is that I believe that our scripture teaches us that those unresolved places are places where God often most strongly meets us. In other words, the thing that you think, if only this was different, if only this was fixed, that God will meet you in that difficulty. I was born in London, Ontario, same hospital as Robert, and uh, not too far from Waterloo where I was. London is a terrible place as well. No, they're fine. They're nice places, but... And I don't remember any of my life in London, Ontario, because I was gone from there, um, not much older than a, a baby, to Scarborough and other places around Toronto. And then when I was three years old, my parents split, and my mom brought my sister and I, who would have been six at the time, to live here in Vancouver. And so I spent most of my childhood, all of my childhood, back and forth lived at times here with my mom and for four years back in Ontario with my dad. I've told you before, but my dad was a single dad in the 1970s. There's many ways we need to look up to our parents. That's one of the ways I look up to my dad. I think, how on earth did you do that? One time, and, you know, not to go into all of our family stories and the pain and difficulty and whatever else, but one time years ago, as I was working on a paper for Regent College, about redemption and probably some theological academic look at redemption or whatever, right? And I'm praying, not praying about the paper. I was working on the paper, probably praying about it too, but around the same time I was praying and I felt from the Holy Spirit something very, very strong. I felt that God was saying to me, Todd, do you know? And so here I am with this paper beside me. I redeem everything. No, you know what it was? i got to change it. Actually, that's right. The class was on counseling. I was taking a counseling class, and you were supposed to write about your family background. So the paper wasn't about redemption. This is how it worked. The paper was about my family background. And I'm praying, and the Holy Spirit speaks to me, I believe, in a strong way, and says, Todd, I redeem everything, and clearly directs me to my own upbringing, my own family, and God lays on my heart, in the end, I will redeem it all. It doesn't mean that everything's perfect now. But I know it will be redeemed. I know it. And we live in the meantime, the time in between. And we pray. And I ask you, and you could go to the back and receive prayer. And some of you have things you're feeling in your family. Go receive prayer from somebody over that. Pray for one another. We live in the meantime and the in-between, and we pray, and I ask you, 
Are you willing to bring your pain and your unresolved family matters and your unfulfilled hopes before the cross of Christ? I end with, I just had it in my head as I was writing the sermon, the Leonard Cohen song. Some of you know the words. I can read them to you. They'll be there momentarily. Think about it in light of your family. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. You know, I'm thinking of that now. Bring your family as it is. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I feel now, even here in this place, could just go through the room and knowing so many people could just would be story after story of family joy and difficulty and pain and unfulfilled hopes. We pray in our faith, and even for those here who might not share this faith, we include all. We pray that we in our faith would know, would hear this call to argue Christianly even in our families. To be aware of when what we are doing is hurtful. To know what to let go of. To know that every family has difficulty. To know that you call us to something greater than simply measured fairness. You call us to love. And to know in you that even as we might argue about incident and circumstance, that in you, Lord Jesus, it is never, ever too late. Come, Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.